Well, hey, everybody. So glad that you have joined us tonight. Uh, this is week four, although our third installment of this Going Deeper series. And uh, I tell you, it's been crazy uh, so far. We had to cancel one week because of COVID. Now here we are on, on Zoom for week four, but I'm really glad that you're here. Uh, as we've kind of said throughout this, we, we are in the middle of a sermon series on Sunday mornings called The Story of God, where we are going kind of from Genesis to Revelation, talking about the big story of the Bible. Um, talking about the idea that, that many of us grew up maybe learning the stories of the Bible, but, but not the story of the Bible, the way in which the whole Bible holds together telling a single story that ultimately leads us uh, to Jesus and to participation in God's mission in the world. And, uh, and yet the, the thing that really was on my heart as we were thinking about that series was the reality that when you read through the Bible, for many of us, there are these deep um, vexing, perplexing kinds of questions that we wrestle with that are just not really the kinds of questions that we can address in a, in a 30 minute sermon on Sunday on the story of the Bible. And so we wanted to, to take this opportunity over the course of these weeks to go deeper and to explore some of these really complicated, really difficult questions. So we began the first week talking about creation and how to understand what's going on in the creation story in the Bible and, and the, the, the complex relationship between faith and science. Last week, we talked about difficult questions regarding um, men and women in the Bible in the ancient world. Um, one of the things that I was really struck by in both of those conversations is that while we are going deeper, um, there's so much deeper still, so many things that we actually uh, weren't able to adequately address. Um, and yet, hopefully, it's, it's allowing us to get some, uh, some ideas, some traction on ways in which we can really consider uh, these big questions. Tonight, we're dealing with a big topic, an important topic, a, a heavy topic, and that is the topic of slavery. In the Bible, in the ancient world, and even the, the reality of the way in which slavery, uh, the way in which the Bible has actually been used throughout history and even uh, American history uh, to justify horrific practices of race-based chattel slavery. And so we need to wrestle with these questions. We need to wrestle with what does the Bible say? Um, our uh, intention tonight is, is not in any way to uh, defend um, either the people of Israel or the history of the church, because there have been um, terrible injustices in, in both the history of Israel and the history of the church. But what we're interested in tonight is exploring the heart of God and considering um, how God thinks about these kinds of complicated issues. And of course, for us, one of the challenges of dealing with a subject like this is that we can't help but engage the conversation and read these passages um, in light of the history of the United States, the history of race-based chattel slavery. Uh, and that is going to inevitably impact the way in which we talk about it and, and think about these kinds of questions. And so tonight, I thought that as we begin, the appropriate place to begin is actually with a time of prayer and really with a time of lament that... Um, for us to talk about these biblical topics without beginning from a place of lament for the realities of history um, and even the reality of our contemporary situation would just be wrong. And so I want to invite you, even though we're here on Zoom, um, we're all going to just bow our heads and, and close our eyes and begin with a moment of prayer. Will you join me in prayer? Father, we um, pause in humility before you. 
and before your word and before these weighty topics. And we begin tonight with an expression of lament. God, we lament the horrific history of race-based chattel slavery in the United States of America. We lament the complicity of many in the church with that. We lament the twisted use of scripture to justify it. We lament the um, the ongoing pervasive presence of uh, racism and racial injustice since even the end of slavery. We lament the complicity and indifference of the church at many points along the way in response to that reality. God, we lament the ongoing presence of racial prejudice, racial injustice in our world today. And once again, we lament the, the complicity and indifference of many in the church in response to that reality. God, we pray for the church, the church in America. We pray for our church, for Irving Bible Church. God, that you would use us, your people, to stand against injustice and oppression of every kind. That you would use us as your people to, um, to advocate for those who are mistreated and maligned and to be a people of reconciliation and justice, to be a people of shalom in the face of the vandalism of shalom. And God, we, uh, we want to be used by you to that end. God, we pray for our time together tonight as we deal with uh, weighty matters, that you'd help us to think well, that you'd help us to think well of you, that we, you would help us to avoid saying anything about you, of you, that is unworthy of you. And also to avoid saying anything about slavery that diminishes its um, terrible reality. And so, Lord, uh, we pray that you would use this time tonight to help us to um, think better about the Bible, to think better about um, how you would have us live in light of it, um, to think better about you. Use this time to that end, we pray. Through Christ our Lord. Amen. All right, so tonight we kind of want to structure our time around three main movements, and I'm going to lead out kind of in the first part and allow um, my friends uh, Sam and Nancy to respond. Uh, we'll move into the second movement, um, and Sam's going to kind of lead out on some of that, and then we'll have the final movement. Nancy's going to talk about that. Let me tell you again, if you weren't here last week, about my friends who joined me. It's so great to have brilliant friends. Uh, first off, my friend Nancy uh, reyes Frazier. Nancy is a um, PhD student at Dallas Seminary, a, a dear friend of mine, one of my former students, and somebody that I've just have um, really loved over the course of the last six years. Uh, we've been uh, dear friends, and um, I'm so thrilled that she's a part of uh, these evenings with me. In addition to that, we have uh, Sam Juan. Sam, uh, Dr. Sam is a professor, uh, adjunct professor in Old Testament at Dallas Seminary, um, and works on the staff there with the uh, um, 
the internship program. And so Sam and I were in school together and became friends uh, almost 25 years ago. And uh, so I'm just so thrilled to have these two dear, trusted, and brilliant friends joining me in this conversation. My first part tonight, I want to talk about the Exodus and its sort of ethical implications for the people of God, uh, Old Testament and, and, and beyond. Um, and then I'm going to have Sam talk a little bit with us about what we see in terms of passages that deal with slavery in the Old Testament and then and the ancient world. And then with Nancy to talk about uh, some passages that address slavery in the New Testament and the first century world. So uh, first off, just a few thoughts with regard to this idea of um, Exodus and ethics. On Sunday, I hope you heard Scott's message. It was fantastic, a summary of the whole story of, of the Exodus. And he talked with us there about the idea that, that Exodus is the liberation of God's people from slavery in Egypt into identity and proximity, the nearness of God, right, proximity and identity, this new calling to be God's people, to be God's kingdom of priests. And one of the things that this um, experience of liberation uh, in the Exodus, liberation from slavery in Egypt, was uh, intended by God to do to his people is to shape them to be a people who practiced righteousness, who practiced justice. We began discussion last week about um, men and women in the Bible in the ancient world by talking about the importance of Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, it talks about every human being, male and female, made in the image of God. This is one of the pillars of biblical ethics. Another pillar of biblical ethics is the experience of the Exodus. And the way that works out is time and time again, when God speaks to his people, he says to them, remember, remember that you were slaves in Egypt. Remember that you were foreigners in Egypt. He continues to have them draw on their historical memory to shape the way that they live. Live now in light of the reality that you've experienced. And the reality that you experienced was, was horrible. The reality that you experienced was unjust oppression by the Egyptian empire. And God calls on his people to remember that and to live differently in light of it. And I want to just take you to just a few passages real quick. Uh, we're going to do some jumping around in different passages, I expect, tonight. So I hope, hope you have your Bible ready with you. And the first place I want you to look with me is in Deuteronomy chapter 5. Deuteronomy chapter 5. Um, I'm sorry, I'm not beginning in Deuteronomy. Let me, let me start with you in Exodus. Exodus chapter 22. We'll do it in, in biblical or Exodus chapter 22. Exodus 22 in verse 21, um, the Lord says to his people, um, he says, do not mistreat or oppress a foreigner for you were foreigners in Egypt, right? Again, remember the reality of your experience in Egypt. And in light of that reality, live differently. So do not mistreat uh, or oppress a foreigner because you were foreigners in Egypt. Um, fast forward ahead, one chapter, chapter 23, verse 9, you see the same idea repeated again. Chapter 23, verse 9. Do not oppress a foreigner for you yourselves know how it feels to be foreigners because you were foreigners in Egypt. So one of the things that you see just running like a thread throughout the Old Testament is this idea of the way Israel was expected to treat foreigners who resided among them. And they were supposed to treat them um, justly. They were supposed to treat them lovingly, as we'll see in a passage on it, because they're supposed to draw on their memory of experience in Egypt. Um, jump ahead to the next book, Leviticus. Leviticus chapter 19. 
Leviticus chapter 19, we're going to look at verse 33 and 34. Leviticus 19, 33. When a foreigner resides among you in your land, do not mistreat them. The foreigner residing among you must be treated as your native born. Love them as yourself, for you were foreigners in Egypt. I am the Lord your God. Right, so again, I hope you're getting this. The time and time and time again, with regard to how they were supposed to treat the foreigners who lived with them, the, the people who showed up there in their midst, they were supposed to love them and treat them justly because they were supposed to remember their experience of mistreatment, their harsh experience, oppressed experience as slaves in Egypt. Okay, jump ahead to Deuteronomy. Now we'll do Deuteronomy chapter 5. Deuteronomy chapter 5. What you see here in Deuteronomy 5 is actually the Ten Commandments. And in the Ten Commandments, we get the Sabbath command. Right? Verse 12, Deuteronomy 5, 12. Observe the Sabbath day by keeping holy, as the Lord your God has commanded you. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you nor your son or daughters, nor your male female servants, nor your ox, nor your donkey, nor any animals, nor any foreigner residing in your towns, so that you may, so that your male and female servants may rest as you do. Remember that you were slaves in Egypt, and the Lord your God brought you out of there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God has commanded you to observe the Sabbath day. It's interesting because the first iteration of the Sabbath commandment is rooted in creation. God rested on the seventh day, and therefore you should rest on the seventh day. But here it's rooted in the Exodus. This is, we might say, the, the kind of justice orientation of the Sabbath. God is saying it would be wrong for you to experience Sabbath, but you to demand other people to work on your behalf. And so, because you are remembering the reality of your liberation from slavery in Egypt, you are to not only practice the Sabbath yourself, but you are to make it possible for everyone to be able to experience uh, Sabbath. A couple more real quick, and then we'll tie up this, uh, this piece of it. Um, uh, look forward ahead in just a, a couple chapters, in, or a few chapters in chapter 10, Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 17. Deuteronomy 10, 17. For the Lord your God is the God of gods and the Lord of lords, the great God, the mighty and awesome one who shows no partiality and accepts no bribes. He defends the cause of the fatherless and the widow and loves the foreigner residing among you, giving them food and clothing. And you are to love those who are foreigners for you yourselves, foreigners in Egypt. Fear the Lord your God and serve him. Hold fast to him and take oaths in his name. So you get the idea here. We get it again, right? You, you get here this trio that shows up over and over and over, something that we'll talk about more next week in the Old Testament. Um, the fatherless, the widow, and the orphan. The, those who are the most vulnerable in the ancient world, in ancient society. God is on their side, and he calls Israel to be on their side too. And part of that is because they are to remember the reality that you were slaves in Egypt. There's a bunch more examples that I could give you, but that's just a few of them. But I think before we actually get into the really hard passages about um, 
slavery in the Bible, one of the things that we need to see is that central to um, biblical ethics for the people of the Old Testament was to remember the reality that they were slaves in Egypt. And in light of their experience, they were to live differently and treat other people differently. That was a, a foundation for their practice of justice. Uh, Sam, Nancy, either of you want to jump in and just kind of riff on that a little bit? Any color commentary to add what I've, to what I've said so far or even implications of what this means even for us today? Um, I was just going to add that, you know, a good way to understand who it is that God protects is um, to use Nicholas Walterstorff's category of the quartet of the vulnerable. So it's the, the three that Barry mentioned, and then the only the one he adds to that is the foreigner. And uh, so it's the widow, the orphan, the poor, and the foreigner. And just a couple quick thoughts on why that is. Um, it's because in the law in Israel, what was recognized was that land was the key to both wealth, but also power. So your status as a landowner determined where you stood in society. And so whether it was having standing at the gates, which is in civic um, matters, or just having financial ability, your inheritance was everything in that sense. And so the people who did not have land would be orphans because they would lose it because of no parentage. Widows would lose it because it was patriarchally um, inherited. And then uh, the poor would lose it just through uh, poverty, debt, um, various circumstances. And then finally, foreigners who are not allowed to have an actual inheritance in Israelite land. Um, and so they were going to be always the most vulnerable. And so the Torah repeatedly will protect them. And that's something really important to understand. Um, and, and real quick add on to that is that the idea of poverty is really complex. I know that's not tonight's topic, but I just want to throw one quick comment. There is a tendency in, in modern Western Christianity to only view poverty through the lens of morality and see it as the effect of immoral behavior or foolishness. And that's kind of locking in on a few passages in Proverbs. And there's this principle that if you don't work, you shouldn't eat, things like that, that does pop up. And th there is a work ethic that the Bible does want to kind of promote, but you should, we need to understand that actually the existence of the poor in the land is an assumption that is made in the Torah. It's not something, it's not an exception to the human condition. It's assumed as part of the human condition. And the poor in the land are often seen as those who are victims, not immoral, not lazy, not uh, poor in character, but actually the victims of, um, oppression of unfair dealings, unjust scale. So, um, the, the, the slavery picture, uh, the picture of how we view slavery will be affected by all those other issues. Yeah, that's good. And we'll have a chance to talk more about some of that next week. Nancy, any, any thoughts from you on this? Yeah, I think um, the point that I would emphasize, which you already mentioned, Barry, is that movement of redemption. So we're talking in uh, in church about the story of God, and if I if we put one word to describe the story of God, I think that word is redemption. Uh, and you see it, you know, we get it back in Genesis. We we. Um, but we we see it, I think, here, and I think it's really emphasized 
and that that sabbatical shift that we see in the Exodus that I, that will pop up again in the. Uh, I'm sure Sam is going to probably touch on some of that dealing with slavery today. This movement of redemption that starts as early as the fall, like right after, and you know you can argue that it's there before, but this movement that's going to follow us, um, and we and we have a picture of that in Exodus that then will course be transformed in a different way in uh the lord's supper later on yeah that's so good yeah i as you're talking it made me think about just that idea that i mean the god that we see in the exodus is the liberator and then of course that is what we see in in jesus right that jesus has come to be a liberator not just from the tyranny of empire but from the, the tyranny of sin and it's so important even as a backdrop for the rest of what we'll talk about tonight, to, to recognize that reality as a part of who God is. Yeah, that redemptive movement that, that, that goes all the way back to the beginning of the story. So good. So good. Well, let's kind of shift a little bit. And, and Sam, I want you to kind of lead us out in some of this. When it comes to thinking about some of these passages that we find, I mean, we even read it there in the, in the um, Sabbath command, there's reference to slaves or servants in Israel. And so here we have the people of God that have been liberated from slavery, and yet they seem to have a practice of having slaves. Um, how do we think about that? How do we understand that? And, and particularly the, just the reality of the pervasiveness of slavery in the ancient world. How does that then show up in the Bible? Um, yeah, so kind of take us into some of those passages from the Old Testament, help us think. Sure. Um, let me just begin by giving one major, major big idea that um, is going to kind of set the tone for everything else I share about slavery as an institution. And that is that um, the practice of chattel slavery was never accepted in the Bible. It's condemned as a first order sin in the Bible. And for some reason, this distinction between chattel slavery, human trafficking, and indentured servitude is confused often. And I, I am not sure why that is. Um, I have some suspicions as to maybe some of the um, other outside forces that affect the way we read. So let me just read for you uh, two texts from the Old Testament and then one from the New and this is real, real quick. They're very short, curt statements, and they're categorical. So Exodus 21, 16, if you want to read along with me, um, I'm reading from the net, says, whoever kidnaps someone and sells him or is caught still holding him must surely be put to death. No, no ifs, ands, or buts. There's no qualifiers on that at all. Deuteronomy 24-7. So when you guys kind of compare Exodus and Deuteronomy, what you want to think of it as, even the name Deuteronomy actually comes from the Latin for second law. And it's because the, the, uh, the Torah recognizes that, in a sense, what you have in Exodus is the first statement of the covenant and the first giving of the law. And then when you get to Deuteronomy, you now have Israel on the cusp of entering the promised land, and they are on the plains of Moab, and Moses gives the law one more time. And so it's a repetition. But as Barry pointed out, 
there are some key differences when it's given the second time. So Deuteronomy 24-7, but it, in this case, it's, it's a really, uh, in, a ses- in essence, rep- repeating what you saw in Exodus 21-16, and it says, if a man is found kidnapping a person from among his fellow Israelites, that's the key difference, and regards him as mere property and sells him, that kidnapper must die. In this way, you will purge evil from among you. So, once again, uh, the categorical uh, citation that human trafficking, chattel slavery is an offense punishable by death. And so, that's why I call it what we would, you know, a first order sin. Um, 1 Timothy 1, 9 and 10. Now, now we're jumping to the New Testament. And believe it or not, I actually did study the New Testament. So, um, <laughs> some of you guys are like, wait, I thought he only knows Hebrew. But no, we, I'm actually a biblical studies guy, not just a old. So, sorry. 1 Timothy 1, 9 and 10 says, Paul writing to Timothy says, realizing that law is not intended for a righteous person, but for lawless and rebellious people, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who kill their fathers or mothers, for murderers, sexually immoral people, practicing homosexuals, kidnappers, liars, perjurers. In fact, for any who live contrary to sound teaching. So, among a lot of other things you see cited there in, in Greek, that expression for kidnappers is actually literally man-stealers. And so, once again, even in the New Testament, Paul is going to affirm what was already in the Torah, which is that chattel slavery, human trafficking of any form, the viewing of any human being as property to be sold or bought is a sin punishable by death. And that there is no exception to this. There is no contextualization of this. Uh, And so I wanted to begin there because there is a lot of confusion. Well, then what's all this stuff about slavery being okay? Um, So what you're seeing then in all these other passages where we do have an institution uh, called slavery in the Old Testament is uh, indentured servitude or debt slavery. And I don't want to soften this. This is also something that you will see shifts very significantly in the new covenant. And so, I am not saying that this is something we as Christians would necessarily endorse or, or practice, but I think it's important to understand what the institution was and how it was different from chattel slavery. So, Uh, Debt slavery is um, basically taking someone on once they are in debt to you for financial debt and are incapable of paying it. And so, according to the law, what the Torah actually does is it takes a practice that was already existent in the ancient Near East, and then it regulates it for the Israelite context. And so, there's a couple of really important things that uh, the Mosaic law does that the ancient Near East did not do when it came to debt slavery. So, debt slavery was never meant to be a permanent condition. So, in Deuteronomy 15, Exodus 21, I'm not going to go through all the passages in detail, but there are there is strict legislation that is provided in the Torah uh, that restricts the term of service 
And it can never be more than four to six years. So even if you are not done paying off your debt, you are never meant to stay in perpetuity as someone's servant. Um, in fact, when you were freed in Deuteronomy 15, indentured servants were required to be set free with a financial gift. And once again, here's why. This was all really a safety net. What it was meant to do was reduce or even prevent the creation of an abject poverty that would create a low social class with no power at all because of financial inability. And so the idea was you go into debt, you go and work for someone for four to six years, and then every seven years, you're guaranteed manumission. And um, this relates to the parable that Jesus tells, by the way, where he said the worker who comes at the very end of the day still gets paid the same as all the other workers. And he said, this is the way God's economy operates. And so, in a sense, you may be someone who comes in and starts your debt slavery like in the fourth year of the cycle. So, you're, you're not working seven years. You may work three years and then you're set free, ideally. And then there's, in addition, the every 50 years, the law of Jubilee would say that the entire land was supposed to be given a year of rest and Sabbath. And during that, um, all debt slaves would be set free as well, regardless of where they might be in their service cycle. And when they were set free, you were required by law to give them seed money, money that you send them out with, so that it reduces the chances that they would fall back into debt at some point. So this was the institution of slavery that is actually being detailed often in scripture, especially in the Old Testament. This is the institution, by the way, that the prophets were talking about when they said that Israel and Judah had become wicked because they were abusing the poor. And here's why. They stopped observing the, the year of release. They stopped releasing debt slaves. They would just keep them and just say, if you don't pay it off, you don't go free. This was clear violation of Torah, and the prophets started to call them on this. Um, and so, final thing I'll say is that there is a sticky kind of difficulty when it comes to the non-Israelite or non-Hebrew slave. Because in Leviticus 25, Deuteronomy 23, and several other places, you will find there is a secondary standard that is applied differently to the foreign slave. And so, people have pointed that out as a very difficult situation because in some ways, they were not given the same generous terms of service as the Hebrew slave. Um, and there's not a whole lot of really way to explain this other than you have to understand where, um, what's going on dynamic-wise as to who becomes a non-Hebrew slave. So, Exodus 21.16, which I led with, and uh, made it very clear that you were never supposed to just go and traffic humans. So, there was never a situation where it would have been okay for anyone any Israelite or someone that's later a Judite to go out and just start taking 
people captives from other countries and making them into a forced labor force. That would have been absolutely the same exact thing that they suffered in Egypt. And that's what God made clear. And Barry was right. That is a dominating ethic that oversees all the other legal restrictions. Um, but the one source of slavery that we um, are going to struggle with a little bit in our modern sense is that in war, you could capture people. That was considered fair game. And so when the Israelites went in and conquered a city-state or another country, that would have been a fair source. Um, but once again, this is going to it's going to sound like I'm making excuses, but it's really you have to understand against the backdrop. In the ancient Near East, it was common for a country that conquers to simply do genocide, to just simply say, we're going to come in, just wipe you out. It's our right. We want your land. That is the source of our power and our growth. And so we're just going to commit genocide. Um, in a way, the lesser of two evils was to say, well, you can always serve us. And there are a couple of examples, um, even with the Jebusites, where a people that were clearly in the sites of Israel for conquest actually requested, can we serve you? And would that make us even? And so the Jebusites actually are able to trick the Israelites into a treaty that is honored all the way into David's days as king. So, I think what you're seeing with the difference in the law's protection of foreign versus Hebrew slaves is that the idea was you should not ever be getting slaves by human chattel trafficking. But if you conquer a people in war and they serve you, that group of people does not have to be set free every seven years because they are not working off a debt. And so that is the nuance that you're going to see uh, in the law. Here's what's really interesting, though. So in the 14th and 15th century, um, Judaism is evolving. And what's really fascinating is that the rabbinic teachers are now taking those texts that were in places like Leviticus 23 through 27 and saying, in this new Judaism, we no longer see a distinction between non-Hebrew and Hebrew slaves. And so there, many in Jewish rabbinic circles became staunch abolitionists, especially when it came to colonial practices of slave trade. And it was because they started to take that uh, same scriptures, the same principles, and say, now in this time and place where Jews no longer have a land and are no longer in the in the in the everyday political conflicts of the day, we no longer need to worry about that category of servitude. And so they then said that all indentured servitude should be subject to the same generous terms that Hebrew slaves were supposed to be subject to. Um, so I, I know that's a lot, but if I can just sum up, I would say that the Bible makes it very clear that chattel slavery was never acceptable. In fact, Go back and read the Joseph story and then and put that in that context and it will completely change the way you understand the dynamic going on between Joseph's brothers and Joseph, especially later when Joseph has the power to hold them accountable. What they were guilty of was punishable by death in the Torah because they took Joseph 
kidnapped him and sold him as property. And so that will change the way you read that story, by the way. So that kind of slavery was never condoned. And, um, and, and just on a side note, it's fascinating that if you go and read up on the history of the slaveholder Bible, it's the biggest eliminations, the things that were edited out were almost all from the Old Testament, primarily. And it was and anywhere from 70, 80 percent of the Old Testament was removed from the slave's Bible. And it was because the slave owners knew that so much of the scriptures would not comport or allow for what they were doing. So that's just a non, that's a, that's categorical. Where, where it's difficult sometimes is this practice of debt slavery. But again, it was meant to be humane. As Barry said, you couldn't make slaves that were working for you in, as indentured servants just work willy-nilly. They got to rest on the Sabbath just as you did. And they got to go free after a certain term of service. And if they paid off their debt even sooner, they didn't have to work the full seven years anyway. And when they did get set free, it was meant to go free with money a blessing so that they would have the chance to start over and get out of whatever situation had put them into that in the first place. Cause it could have been anything. It could have just been a bad couple of years of harvest. It could have been family disaster, maybe the death of the Potter familias, the father, um, the patriarch. So all sorts of things can put people into um, abject poverty. And so debt slavery was a way to actually protect those people from a lifelong permanent uh, marginalized status. Okay. Several things there that really strike me, Sam. One is, um, and you pointed this out, and I've been thinking a lot about it this week because I'm moving in the sermon on Sunday to the exile, right? And that part of what, part of the reason that God's people wind up in exile, right, experience the judgment of God yeah. is actually because they have failed to practice justice in the way that God, like the two twin sins that are throughout the prophets that are the reasons for, for exile are idolatry and injustice. And a lot of that has specifically to do with the violation of some of the things that we've been talking about here. But Nancy, I, I'm eager to get to the first century, but I'd love to hear your comments, and especially I'm thinking about that idea that you pointed out, this sort of redemptive movement. And so we don't want to just say, you know, this is something that God's okay with, or you use an analogy in a conversation you, you and I, I had earlier this week about even a, an analogy like with divorce. God hates divorce, but he creates allowances. Do you want to say a little bit about that in response to what we said so far in the Old Testament? Yeah, I think um, if I can make one point is what I, what I would hate for anybody to hear tonight is that God condones any kind of slavery, right? Um, and, I, and I hear the differences and we know them and there's other problem passages that... Um, make even that kind of um, any kind of slavery just really problematic in the Old Testament. And so um, what we don't see is God institutionalizing slavery, right? So the understanding is slavery exists. So um, if you try to find a passage in the Old Testament to say this is where slavery is first introduced into the history, it, you're not going to find it because all of a sudden what you find is they're just our slaves, right? And this is early, early on. So um, my husband and I just we were talking about it and trying to 
you know, just wrestling within ourselves and some conversations I had with Barry that were really helpful. And one of the things we see is as early as Abraham, right? This is the father of, of the Israelite people. Um, as early as Abraham, you see slavery and you see the brokenness of slavery, even in this man that, that is going to be called faithful and good. You see it with, um, Hagar and Sarah. So what you see is, is a kind of just really problematic. You know, she, she is given, you, you see that her complete lack of freedom because she's given to Abraham. She doesn't volunteer for the job of bearing his son. She's just given to him because her life is not her own. And we see that early on. And so what I don't want to do is, is for anybody to walk away saying, well, we defend God of the Bible by defending this really messed up system. No. Um, so, so my big thing is slavery is bad. Slavery is evil. All slavery is bad. Um, but what you do see, then you have to wrestle with the idea of what, what's going on in these laws that, you know, Sam talked to us about. And I think the, the point I want to emphasize that Sam made was these are meant to protect people in a system that is not looking out for them. And so we go, so why are they there? And as a theologian, this is, this is where I kind of land, right? We take something like divorce. And so divorce passage is going to help me interpret slavery passage. And this is how I take it. God tells us really clearly, I hate divorce. And yet we have laws in the Old Testament that lay out the way that you should have a divorce and the way that you should be treated. So what's going on here? Because in my mind, I go, easy, you hate divorce. You just say no divorce. And it takes until the New Testament, for us to get an explanation, and it comes from Jesus. And Jesus says, you, you, God, uh, Moses allowed for divorce because of your hard heart. And so you see the emphasis is, the problem is not God. The problem is not what God loves. So that, the problem is not God's ideal. The problem is us. We are hard-hearted. So what you see in God is a perfect, good, holy, just, righteous God who condescends to work with a people, to love a people and redeem a people that are broken and sinful and hard-hearted. And he does it slowly and he does it through a change and a movement and a development in history that for some of us, and for things like slavery are really, really frustrating because I think any of us would say, why? Why did it take so long? Why has it taken so long? But I think what we see in the Torah is a shift, is this movement of this broken thing that is just, it, it exists in the world. It's as early as we get in Genesis, it's there. And God is slowly turning the knob to go, this thing has to be eradicated and moved out. And I think we do see that. And I, that's what I see in scripture. And that's what I see in the Old Testament. And that's how I would say it. So um, is indentured servitude the better of two evils? Yeah, but I would probably emphasize the part that it's still, it's not, it's not ideal, right? So Sam, exactly. So Sam and me, and Barry, none of us are going to say, well, it's okay, so we can practice it. No, we don't practice it now for a reason. 
And this is part of it. And, um, and, and that view of divorce, if it helps you, it's helped me a lot to go, why is this here? If this doesn't reflect the heart of God. And I think that's part of it. It says you are hard hearted. I think ideally it would look very different and it will, and it has, and we've moved in that direction. Um, so that, that's kind of my yeah. feedback yeah. on that. And we consistently see the heart of God for protecting the most vulnerable. Um, so good. Yeah. Well, that, yeah, I wanted yeah, to affirm ahead, that I never was saying that it was okay. Yeah. Um, but I would say that if you took that indentured servitude off the table, you would see much more violence and much more oppression of the poor. That it, it protected people. It, it, was an, it, it was an institution that God does not. I'm with Nancy. It's not that he loves it. It's not that he set it up either. But what he is doing, he's saying, well, here's what you guys used to do with people when they owe you money. And here's how you used to treat the poor. I'm not going to let that happen. So you're going to let them work for you, but you're also going to set them free. And you're going to do it um, my way, not based on how much they owe you or how much you think you're um, entitled to. And that was a big shift. But you're, Nancy's right. I'm, I'm not addressing the New Testament ethic. That's her thing. But yeah, the New Covenant changes even that. The Beatitudes take us into a whole new moral ethical space. And it says, now we're looking at, hey, if someone needs your you know, something from you, why don't you give them not just the coat, but also the tunic you're carrying, you know? And so um, it goes from don't charge uh, interest and don't keep people indentured forever to now it's just, no, just give people generously. And so there is going to be a movement there. And, it, and it's, the, it's the movement from uh, Mosaic to New Covenant. And so that's, that's an important part of it. But it's just also helpful to understand what was going on in the world that, that, that the Jewish people, the Hebrew nation was trying to deal with and navigate um, at that time and in that place. So. Good. Well, let's, let's go on into kind of New Covenant context. Uh, Jesus comes on the scene and the, 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 the um, sort of spiritual revolution that he brings through the, the introduction of the kingdom, um, the call to discipleship. Um, and yet, when we read the New Testament, we have to wrestle with the fact that there are still these passages that address slaves, give commands to slaves, and we don't get what we would, I think, really want. And that is a clear, explicit denunciation of slavery, a call to, you know, topple the system. Nancy, talk to us a little bit about first century context. We're now more in the Greco-Roman world, some of the dynamics there, and what we see, for example, in the writings of the Apostle Paul um, when it comes to thinking about these issues. Yeah, so um, before I hit any passages in particular, what I want to do is kind of help us see understand the context right so the passages that we find so troubling in the first in in the new testament are really a reflection of what's going on that's just pervasive in first century roman greco-roman culture right and so slavery is an instituted slavery um and it, at this point, by the time we get to the first century, what we have is shadow slavery. So specifically what Sam talks about um, saying you you don't uh, kidnap people, you don't take them and sell them or anything like that. That's actually what we have in the first century. So 
what I want you to hear me say today is if you have ever heard someone teach or preach or read in a commentary that says that first century slavery was not um, was not as bad as 19th century antebellum slavery, I want you to hear me. That is not true. It is awful. It is wicked. It is chattel slavery. You are like people are sold as property. And I'll get into some of the specifics. And I want to basically, if we have a couple of minutes to take us through what it would be like, what we would be if we were slaves in the first century, before we try to listen to some of what Paul is going to say. Uh, but I want to make that very, very clear, right? So I've got wonderful commentaries on Ephesians lining my, my bookcases that really mess up on this point. And so because it took me much too much work for me to find good information is why I am so adamant about making sure that we all hear that this is a myth that we just have to uh, get out of our churches and out of our seminaries. The idea that it was somehow better than 19th century antebellum slavery. It was different, particularly in a couple of ways, the most significant of which is that it's not race-based slavery. So if you are, let's go back to the first century. We're living in first century Ephesus, and you are walking down the marketplace, and you see men and women of all ethnicities and nationalities and all sorts of skin tone. You cannot tell who is a slave and who is a free person or freed person because it's just not race-based. That's not what it is. That's not the distinction that makes you a slave. Um, so that is that is one of the major differences. And we can talk, we'll talk a little bit about, if I have some time about some of the other differences. But if you can say that it was different, that's the main, the main reason. But as far as any better, it's not. So I want you to imagine under first century Roman law, slaves, have absolutely no rights. You have no legal status, no individuality. You are property and you are the property of the highest bidder at a slave market. So if you think slave markets are this invention of 19th century America, no, they are very present in the first century. Um, you are bought in, in the eyes of Rome. The only difference between you and a chair or a vase or a dog or a mule is that you happen to speak. So you are not a person. You are an object, right? Noun is person, place, or thing. You're the thing. Um, and that's just the way you're treated. And so we have these treatises um, from the early first centuries that early um period this, that basically are about how to take care of your slave and they read the way like a manual would have for how to take care of your dog or your cat right so they'll say things like you want to feed your slave good food because if you don't they're going to not work well and they're going to die early and there goes your investment so there's nothing humane about it there is a a, a difference between um Greco-Roman Jewish communities and Greco-Roman Gentile communities. And that's that rabbinic law at this time recognizes slaves as persons. And that sounds significant and it is in some way. Unfortunately, that ends up playing out theoretically. So practically speaking, slaves are not treated any different in um, Greco-Roman Jewish communities, um, it, apart from the fact that they're recognized as persons. And we'll get 
into some of those um, differences. Maybe we have a little less time. Um, so it's true. Um, slaves are going to serve in a, a number of industries. Um, so there's field slaves and a doctor can be a slave and a philosopher might be a slave. And, and sometimes it's those aspects of slavery in the first century that makes people say, well, this was better. It's not as bad as 19th century slavery. But the truth is, is you're still property and that your master can basically do whatever he or she wants with you. And one of these significant things that comes up, especially as we're going to talk about those passages that we find in the New Testament, is the connection between um, slavery in the first century and exploitative sexuality. So basically, one of the big things is, of course, your property. That means that you, you do not have control over your body. So both male and female slaves are sexually available to their masters and to whomever the master wants to give access to. And what, we, what documents and teams send, seem to imply is that this kind of sexual exploitation, it's very violent exploitation. So we have a divorce decree from a woman um, saying, accusing her husband of abuse because she says he treated me like a slave and she's, it's in a, a sexual connotation or kind of context. And so it's, it's very, very um, problematic. And we'll get into why as we read some of this, uh, these commands from Paul in Ephesus, right, in Ephesians. But what you see is, for example, and, and I, uh, I know this is very strong, um, but so I, it talks about Jewish law recognizing slaves as people. Um, for example, so one of the things, one of the teachings was that if a, a three-year-old slave was granted her freedom, she could still grow up to um, marry as a virgin when she became marriageable age. And what we find out is it's not because they thought that a child would not be exploited sexually, but rather because they believed that the hymen would close by the time that child reached marriageable age. And so for all intents and purposes, she would be considered um, a virgin. So the problem is this emphasis of the sex, the, the kind of, you, you get a picture of the twisted nature of what it is. Doesn't matter if you're a child, it doesn't matter if you're male or female. The only difference is that if you are female, not only are you exploited, um, but because you live in a society that so values chastity and purity for women, that your being a slave, you can never shed that kind of um, shame and you can never really um, overcome it socially because you're always seeing it. So what you end up seeing is either slaves are prostitutes or freed women become prostitutes because they really don't have any other way of taking care of their family or themselves and if they have any family. So um, how, am I, how are we doing, Barry? Are we okay? I'm good. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Um, so those, I'm, I'm struck by... Just you know, one of the things that makes me think of is early conversation you and I had about this years ago um, when you were working on a sermon is how often we just take those passages and sort of principalize them about a boss and an employee. And I think part of what you're doing in really walking us just through how horrific the situation was in the first century is really problematizing that way of, of really trivializing that rather what we have is 
instruction on how to endure in an unjust situation. Yeah. yeah I'm, I'm really glad you reminded me that because I forgot about that. That was one of my yeah. big frustrations is that if you go, you know, go on YouTube and Google sermons on Ephesians 6 and what you find is this is how you should behave with your employer. But here's the thing. My employer tries to force himself sexual on me. It's a very different story than what's going on in the first century. And really, it's it's slave and prostitute is, is almost synonymous at this point because you just don't have that kind of freedom. Uh, I feel like there was something else I wanted to say before I went into the passage, but... Um, yeah, so so you kind of at least that gives oh manumission. I do want to say something about manumission. Manumission is just a fancy academic work that means being granted freedom. And so we get kind of I think what I find a lot is that as Christians we romanticize this idea that that slaves could be freed. And it's true that the hope of manumission is there, but it's really available to a very very small minority. And most often it's going to be men that are going to that have any hope of being granted manumission um manumission is also going to be like this carrot kind of that they uh, masters will dangle in front of their slaves to try to get them to work harder and they'll just basically use it for their advantage without having any intention of actually setting their slaves free and something that's really interesting is that even if you are granted freedom, that freedom doesn't come with self-determination. So as a freed person, you are still under the patria potestas, which is just the power, the, the authority of your former master. So it's, it's really complicated in that sense. So the idea that you just have freedom and you have autonomy and you have self-determination, that is just, it's just really not the way that the first century works. So keep all of those things in mind. And um, let me see if I can find, oh, well, I have it right in front of me. And then listen to Paul, who's going to say in Ephesians 6, right? So this is Ephesians 6, 5. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ, not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as slaves of Christ. So um, we are confident that every, the early church, that there were slaves that were members of those churches. Um, and this is, you know, the way that the scriptures are, are passed around in the first century, they're letters written to like Ephesus, but then they're copied and then they're passed around to other churches who then read them. And so you're a slave sitting in Ephesus and you've come to this community and you're sitting down, which is, is very, um, in its, in its own, in its own way is, is, um, just radical in the first century, right? You've got freed people, you've got servants sitting down as a community. And that really should be a huge kind of flag for us to go, there's something different about this Christianity thing. Mm -hmm. And what you hear is this teaching from this respected apostle who was with Jesus, who knew Jesus. And he says, obey your masters. And that just sounds crazy right? To us. So the question becomes, what happens when my master is forcing himself on me sexually, 
And then you you have to read that in light of all of these other things that Paul is saying. The reality is, so so what's going on here? And Sam, feel free to jump in. I don't want you to say like, oh, we're talking about the New Testament, but um, it really complicates the whole thing. And so I think what's going on is if, if we leave this section, if we only read Ephesians 6, it is really, really, really problematic if we just read slaves obey your masters. So what we have to do is actually read it in the entirety of the letter. And the way that, for example, uh, Paul is going to start Ephesians is he's going to say, let me tell you about who you are in Christ. And he basically says, you are children who are adopted as Christ. So you're sitting there as a first century uh, slave with the very harsh realities of what it means to be a slave with absolutely no freedom. And you have this guy saying, you are actually a son of God. And you, and that of course, sonship comes with, I mean, maybe you've heard this from all these sermons, um, complete um, authority in the family, inheritance, all of these things that are highly respected. And that's really the context that we have to frame all of this. So what you don't see is, a condoning of slavery. In fact, we're going to see in Paul later in a letter to Philemon in some other areas where he says, hey, you don't treat slaves as, as your slaves. You treat them as your brothers and sisters in the Lord. And that is huge. That's, I mean, that is as, I don't want to call him an abolitionist because I think a lot of people would have trouble with that, but it's, it's very, uh, very radical in the first century in a, in a place where not only does the whole society depend on slave labor, but slaves themselves can actually own other slaves? It's very, very strange. And it seems to be unquestioned. Mm -hmm. That's good. That's good. Um, talk a little bit about Philemon, um, because you mentioned it, and I think it's really important, right? The reality is, I think part of what you said is, here's this, this societal... Um, uh, system and that Paul doesn't explicitly denounce and say, let's topple the system. I think because um, that the, the, the Christian church is such this tiny minority that the very idea that they could topple this economic system that the Roman empire is sort of built on the back of it's, it's beyond their ability in some ways to imagine. And yet what we find is this, affirmation of the dignity of even the slave, the, 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 the idea of the slave becomes a brother. Um, and in Philemon, Paul sends Onesimus, this free slave, back to uh, his previous master. And yet what Paul does there, I think, is actually pretty masterful in really pointing to it, Nancy, part of what you're saying of Onesimus, you actually, you have to see um, or Philemon, you have to see Onesimus, the slave, the, the slave that I'm sending back to you. You have to see him differently now. Um, I'm thinking and, and particularly about what Paul says in Philemon um, verse 16, no longer as a slave, but better than a slave as a dear brother. And Paul's drawing out the implications of this new identity that you pointed to us in Christ that says, therefore, you've got to treat him differently. Thoughts on that? 
Yeah, um, actually, I think that Philemon is a, this case, it is challenging slavery. It really is because mm-hmm. the fact that a, a slave owner would treat his own slave. So you have to understand um, it, the slave here is in danger, right? Because he is fleed. He can be, he, every, he, you get an, it's, you get a reward for returning him. Um, he can be branded like physical branding to mark him as a slave, as an escaped slave. It's all of this. And so the fact that Paul is sending him back, maybe, maybe our tendency is to want to go, what, what are you doing? How are you sending him back? But how he sends him back, that's just radical. And it is a challenge to the institution of slavery. So sometimes we say it's not really questioned, but I don't see how we can really say that reading Philemon. Sam, what do you think? Yeah, I want to, I think the, your discussion is awesome and it was really helpful. And I'm just going to add, um, looking at the question of then what's changed in the new covenant. And I think there's a couple of clues that Jesus gives us. So I think one thing that's really helpful is when you read Matthew 5 and 6, which is the Sermon on the Mount, um, know that that wasn't the only time Jesus gave that teaching, but it was the most, the one we have recorded for us in the Gospels in that particular form. And one of the things you're going to find in Matthew 5 and 6 is how subversive it is, because it is the new covenant version of the Decalogue, in a sense. It is the Ten Commandments reframed for the new covenant, meaning now that the gift of the Holy Spirit is coming upon us, and now that the law will be written on your hearts, how is it that the people who have been redeemed by Christ will then reflect the Torah and its perfection? And so the Beatitudes and the Sermon on the Mount help us do that. So here's something I want to point out there. Um, it talks about giving um, and it generously, and it talks about how it used to be that if you just kind of gave in a way that was ceremonial, that was acceptable. But the Sermon on the Mount says that's no longer enough. But as, as he concludes in verse 6, um, here's this statement is rarely ever connected, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to connect a few dots and see if this will make sense for you guys. Slavery in and of itself is the sin that tries to subvert the curse of the fall. So when Adam was cursed, what was pronounced upon him in Genesis 3? It was that from now on, you will have to bring forth fruit from the earth by the sweat of your brow. And slavery is our attempt to say, I'm going to bring forth my own fruit by the sweat of someone else's brow. It's incredibly <clears throat> offensive to God. It's man uh, basically kind of spitting in God's face and saying, your curse has no power over me. But the way I'm going to do that is I'm going to violate somebody else's Imago Dei, somebody else's Shalom, so that I will not have to work by the sweat of my brow. And so um, I think an important connection to make is to always connect slavery ultimately, whether it's in the Bible or whether it's in uh, the colonial America, is it's always tied to mammon. It is the worship of mammon that drives people to commit this horrible sin. And so look in, in Matthew 6, it says at the end, no one can serve two masters for either he will hate the one and love the other, 
or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. And so Jesus is subversively saying, if you guys want to keep worshiping money, you're going to keep doing this to each other. But the ones who stop worshiping mammon will be able to give generously. So I'm going to leave you with this kind of tantalizing thought. How many times have you guys heard that the story of the woman, the widow who gives the two mites, is preached almost all every time I've ever heard it was, look at how great this widow is because she's giving more than everyone else in the story. Because she had nothing and she gave out of that nothing pretty much everything. That's how I've heard it so many times. But I think actually what Jesus is doing there is even more subversive and even more powerful. He's saying she wouldn't be in this position if you guys actually did as I commanded you and you were reprimanded by Zechariah when the post-exilic community was reestablishing worship at the temple. One of the indictments of the priesthood and the priestly class in Zechariah by the prophet was, you are keeping the storehouses of God empty. And by doing that, you have nothing to give to the poor. And I think what Jesus was pointing out was, you guys are rich, and that's the reason this woman is poor. It was so much more subversive than just simply saying she's giving more than you guys. And, and so I, I think that the slavery is, it, Nancy's absolutely right. You may not see a verse, chapter verse that you can just point to and say, there's your abolition smoking gun. But I will say this, the new covenant ethic over and over again will say that you should not have poor among you in the first place, and you should never be gaining your wealth by the sweat of someone else's brow. And so that would be like kind of a more of a theological ethic to help us understand the evil of slavery in any context. And I think that ethic is then what Paul implies back in Philemon when he says, I know that you'll do even more than I ask. Paul there could have been heavy handed and said, set him free. But rather he says, he says, Philemon, you need to get the implication of the gospel. And if you get the implication of the gospel, then obviously going to send me. He's a brother. So we're uh, out of time. We want to give plenty of time for some group discussion. So um, such rich conversation. Sam, Nancy, thank you guys so much for uh, being a part again. I think Nancy, we're going to pick up some of these. Some, but, oh, yeah, Nancy. I think I might have forgot. I just, I do want to um, say that one of the things that we see is that these the the shift that's happening is a communal shift right so sometimes we tend to read our scriptures very individualistic but we have to remember that they're written to entire communities so what you see is you may not see a march down you know roman you know down roman avenue because they'll just be eliminated by an army but what you do see is paul challenging entire communities within these cities that then are actually seen as they are the light for these entire communities that really challenge these systems that are already in place so in some in some respects he is really challenging the system i so wish that's good no it's good yeah it's good transform people transform city hey um next week we'll pick up some of these same threads talking about the question, what is biblical justice? Um, this word justice is one that's a, it's a kind of a hot potato right now because it's become so politicized and, and uh, people are afraid of it in some sense or people hear implications. And so we need to go back because it's a word that's all over the place in the Bible. We need to understand what is biblical justice. 
Um, and uh, yeah, so we'll be wrestling through, through some of that next week and even the implications then that has for how we live as 21st century disciples today. But I'm going to throw it back to Camille for instructions on getting into your discussion groups. Thank you guys for joining us tonight. Actually, Barry, we do have a couple questions. Oh, guys we're going to do Q&A. Q&A. I forgot. Yes. I mean, yeah, we can't I get through without a few questions. So Chad is posting for everyone who's um, on the Zoom. Chad is posting the questions in the chat, um, but I'll read them aloud and then um, see who wants to take it on. So it says, how are we to read Christian theologians who explicitly endorse slavery in their writing, like Jonathan Edwards and others? Can we trust their theology in other areas when it seems they were so wrong about slavery? That's a great question. And did we lose Nancy? I, she may have jumped off. I'm, I'm here. here. Okay. Okay. Sorry. I thought I saw something that said. So I unmuted um, myself. Um, you know, I think the, the case on Jonathan Edwards should really terrify all of us because the reality is that Jonathan Edwards wrote some really beautiful theology and yet had this incredible blind spot. And, uh, and we don't ignore that. We don't hide it. We don't, you know, sweep it under the rug. We address the fact that absolutely this was a part of his life. He was not just a um, product of his time. There were plenty of people in during his time that were calling for the abolition of slaves. He was not one of them. And we do, I think that we don't stop reading him necessarily, but we have to read him in in the context of his failure as well. And what scares me about it is to say, man, I don't write things that are as beautiful as that. Where are my blind spots though? That that we could be, we could love God so passionately and be so wrong about some things. What scares me more are 21st century theologians who say things like, well, he owned slaves, but it gave him a time to be able to address these things. That's don't be that people. Like, yeah. don't be those people. Yeah, yeah. I, I worked with a student who wrote a, a dissertation on Edwards on this issue. And part of the case was his own theology should have, like principles in Edwards' theology should have led him to set his slaves, slaves free and become an abolitionist. And yet he, he didn't follow the implications of his own theology. But then he, the same student looked at one of Edwards' um, protégés, who using Edwards' theology came to abolitionist convictions, and just the the, the the terrible blind spot. And so I think I think you're exactly right. We just have to be honest about the reality of this horrible blind spot. And unfortunately, we we see other other figures in Christian history who have blind spots that that ought to alarm us about the question about what are our own. Sam, you're going to jump into. Yeah, I'm, I think that I'm, I might be a little harsher than you guys when it comes to Edwards and Whitfield. I think that there's actually some recent scholarship that I really appreciate that's good, that actually interrogates, was it a blind spot or did it actually affect their theologies in ways that we need to be aware of? And I think there's some really good work being done on Edwards in particular, that there are certain views of his, his views of God and his theology proper that actually may be defective. And that's reflected in his inability to see the evil of slavery. Um, A better example for me that's a little more clear, because Edwards, I think we can debate a little bit, but is with 
Whitfield. So Whitfield evolved over time. And the cause of his evolution towards being willing to allow slavery had everything to do with money. Once Whitfield understood the lay of the land in America and wanted so badly for his orphanage and some of his other ministries to thrive, he realized his earlier abolitionist tendencies did not allow for economic prosperity for his ministry. So he took that what had a good motivation or intention and used it as cover for buying into a system that was clearly evil and absolutely wrong in the eyes of God. So I think that that's a great question. And I, I do think we should not be afraid to interrogate these theologians yeah. and say, not only blind spot, but did this actually come out of maybe some defects in their theology? Well, and and thank you so much for clarifying, Sam, um, because, and let, so let me clarify, when I say blind spot, I whole, wholeheartedly believe that, uh, that Edwards thought that he was fine writing his theology, yeah, even yeah. with this thing. That's what I mean. Sure, what I sure. do, and I, so I, I absolutely agree with Sam. So I do want to clarify. Yeah, we read it understanding that his ownership of, of people absolutely had an impact on his on, on his theology, theology right yeah. so yeah. is he writing things that sound beautiful he i mean i i've read yeah. it sure. he's been influential in my sure. life and yeah. i'm i'm not i'm not a big proponent of canceling voices because <laughs> right. i think we have to learn from voices sure uh, we've got to learn from their mistakes but do i think that he thought he his theology was fine I mean, the, I mean, to an ex I mean, Edwards will like you'll sit in his in his church and he will call you out by name sure. and point at you and like I just think he thought he was fine and I think mm -hmm. that we have to say he might have not seen it but we do see it sure. and like you can't hold that kind of sin and it not change yeah. and come yeah. and and change right. your has, theology. Yeah, has ten, so ten, ten ago. Yeah, it's good. Yeah, it's great. Another question. Yep. So we, the next question says, does this discussion about slavery in the Bible relate in any way to racial equality today? Might the idea of seed money that Sam discussed relate somehow to reparations? Can I, can I take that one <laughs> or at least start? Um, um, I, I am absolutely in favor of reparations and I think it's biblical. So, but it's not necessarily the seed money um, that I would necessarily maybe go to as my primary uh, texts to support that. Um, because in that sense, the, the money they, they were commanded to send them out with in Deuteronomy 15 was not really what I would consider reparations in the modern sense. But there are other things that we'll get to in the justice conversation that I think will say, ooh, the Bible does seem to point us towards rep reparations, because I think the concept of justice itself in Scripture is that it's we strive to do what is right, that's righteousness, tzedakah, and where we fail to do what is right, we use justice to be the measure of how you fix that. And inherent in the idea of justice in the Old Testament is this concept of repair, which is actually where we get the English word reparations from. So I would say that I'm going to be pro-reparations, but maybe not for that exact reason. Um, but as, as far as the equality conversation, yes, because there is some aspects, Nancy's right, we do not see in biblical slavery 
slavery race because that concept of race does not really come into existence until uh, the 15th, 16th century with the advent of colonialism, the doctrine of discovery in the Catholic Church, and the advent of like more modern um, imperial and colonial uh, practices. So that's where race um, as a social construct becomes what we know of it today, which was the basis for chattel slavery in Africa and the Caribbean and uh, parts of uh, South America. So, but there are things about the way we view nations and people groups in the Old Testament that definitely give, inform how we must view the equality of all peoples as equal bearers of the Imago Dei. So, um, yeah, so yes, for sure, I would say yes. And I think that that's where, um, if we're going to preach about, if you know, Ephesians 6, our move to relevance, you know, is not um, employers and employees. It's really addressing the racial inequality or just inequality that we have. And I do, I didn't mention this, but even in the first century, you do have this sect, this Jewish sect called the Essenes, who recognize and reject slavery in the first century because they say this produces injustice. And so, um, so that it, it very much is relevant to our conversation. Sam is right. Race is not a thing during this time, but it is a thing for us now. And really, there's so much for us to learn about inequality from the Bible that is very much speaks to it. And in fact, that was one of the things that I was saying, like, one of the issues that happened was one of those traffic stops with my husband and realizing I respond to a traffic stop very differently than my black husband. And, uh, and how do we react to all those things? And I think the Bible still speaks to that. It's not, you know, it's, it's addressing it in its own context. Yeah. Good. And this again is a, a great opportunity to kind of point ahead to next week. I think these are the kinds of questions we want to really spend more time wrestling with as we get into the question of what is biblical justice and then its application to some of the things that we face today. So I think we'll have more opportunity to kind of do a deeper dive into some of this next week. Maybe you got another, got another one for us? Yep. I think we'll do one final question if you guys are good with that. Perfect. Okay. So when reading scripture, how do we di differentiate between which of the laws or commands of God are designed to be a best alternative to our broken world versus God's ideal? I, I'm going to lead off with just, uh, I use the new covenant as a kind of first line of guidance, uh, because that is the final fulfillment of the law. So when Jesus says, I've come to fulfill the law and not abolish it, what he means is that the Torah was always good, uh, but that it was also not completely reached its final fulfillment in the new covenant does that so the spirit uh writing the law in our hearts the the ministry of the indwelling spirit is the game changer so i would say the new testament um principles as laid out in like the sermon on the mount become kind of your um ruler it, it's a good uh ruler or 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 you know just it's your measuring stick and i would begin there uh for knowing how does this apply to today because you will get the, that's the best place to begin starting to draw out like what i would call more the timeless principles that you can then use in in modern context kind of what nancy was talking about a little bit as well yeah 
You know, I, I think what we see in Jesus is Jesus can be an idealist in a lot of his preaching. I mean, I don't know if you just think about, you know, Sam mentioned if someone asks you for, a, you know, your shirt, you give them your cloak as well. That's really idealist ethics. And yet he is also very much a pragmatist because I think because he's working with really broken people, they continue to fail over and over and over again. The reality is we never, we, we are incapable, I think, as creatures to reach God's ideal. That's why he sends Jesus, because we can't do it. And I know that we're going to talk a little bit about the cross and the significance of that as well later on in the series. Um, and so... Another thing is, um, and you see some of this in Paul, I wish we could have talked more about the shift, um, because he's going to use the language of slavery, for example, to talk about our relationship with God. And the difference is he's using the language because it's a system that everybody knows and understands. And what changes there is not the devotion and complete uh uh, sub, uh, what do you call it when you are subservient to a master, but the master, because when God is your master and he is good and he is holy, then it really changes the relationship. So it's not that like, so Paul, you start to see that shift of this is, there's nothing ideal about first century slavery at all, at all. Um, and what he says is he starts to change it so that it challenges that so that it means to this freedom of brotherly love. So when you when you read Galatians, he's going to say in Christ, there is no free or slave. You guys are one. You are the same. Um, and so I, I don't know if that fully addresses it, but it's part of it is that he is dealing with the people who live in a broken world where sin is real and our hearts have a tendency to be hard or to harden. And yet he's, he holds up this ideal, but with such a grace of the grace of a pragmatist, right? The ideals of God, but the grace of a pragmatist. I don't know if that helps. Yeah, no, that's so good. I, yeah, I think that's, and uh, I think the only thing that I would add to what's been said with regard to the question is that um, the principle that we began with last week of human beings made in the image of God, right? This is part of that ideal that we only see realized in Genesis one and two and revelation 21 and 22, right? The rest of it, everything in between is the context of the vandalism of Shalom. Things are not the way they're supposed to be. And so we see the heart of God, even in these places where he's accommodating the reality of human sin, particularly with respect to, to protecting the most vulnerable. Um, and, and we've talked about that. We'll talk about it again a lot more next week. And so that's part of what we see um, just so near to the heart of God throughout the page of the Bible is the protection of the most vulnerable. And that, so, anyway, yeah. That word redemption is, is not as, yeah. it's just, it's never as weighty as when it's heard by a slave, because yeah. to be redeemed means to be set free. Set and the, free. and what, Paul is going to present is a freedom is Christ that is full and whole and everything that Shalom is supposed to be. So good. So good. Thank you. So guys. good. Love Thank it. So much. Thank you all for your time, for spending the evening with us on this snowy day. 
Um, I can't wait to hear you guys next week, um, but we will let you guys go. And if for everyone who's on the line, if you are a young adult and you would like to be a part of a discussion group, just stay on um, the Zoom. And if you would like to go and get some rest, you can jump off. But thank you guys again. Thanks, Barry, Nancy. And right. Bye, everybody. Bye. Bye, everybody. Thanks.